HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant. A shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food, food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Anita Lowe, the former chef owner of the Michelin-starred restaurant Anissa in Greenwich Village and author of the recently released cookbook, Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Anita about her new cookbook, life after nearly two decades running her own restaurant, and we'll hear Anita's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, the more you know, the more you can create. There's no end to imagination in the kitchen. Now, Julia wasn't saying just dash into the kitchen, throw on a beret, do whatever, in a mad burst of trying to be creative. The emphasis is on the learning part first. Learn your craft, know your stuff, know a lot of stuff. And then, with that base firmly in place, 
then you can improvise. You can't play jazz riffs until you know all the notes. Someone who exemplifies what Julie was talking about is Chef Anita Lowe. Before opening her Michelin-starred and beloved Greenwich Village restaurant in Nisa, Anita did some serious training. After studying French in college, she worked in acclaimed restaurant kitchens in France and then New York, as well as attended the Ritz-Escoffier Cooking School in Paris. When she opened Anissa, it was a rare, chef-owned and run independent restaurant. Its delicious dishes married fine dining with global cuisine. Her approach to improvising, based on the skills she learned in France and French restaurants in New York, combined with her world travels and Chinese heritage, led Anissa to earn both a three-star review from the New York Times and a Michelin star in many years running. Ask anyone who's eaten there, and they will wax nostalgic about Anita's foie gras soup dumplings. Welcome to the podcast, Anita. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. We're excited. So your new book focuses on cooking for one, but it's also dedicated to your life partner. So since you aren't a singleton, what's the story that you were setting out to tell with Solo? <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I, I think it should be okay to be alone. I, I think... Um, I think people need to be alone, and um, I did want to tell people that, um, you know, you're not alone if someone breaks up with you. So it's a book for all of those moments? It's for all of those moments, but it's for, you know, it, 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 it can be, the the recipes are easily multiplied, so, um, and it's a lot easier to multiply than to divide. Um <laughs> So That's it's, true. you know, I just, it, this, this book was for the people that were cooking for themselves. But if you happen to have a partner or you want to cook for four people or whatever, you can multiply by however many times you need to multiply. So there's like an exponential f- factor. And do you think most of the recipes in the book are easily done times two times four? Or there are some that are, are more scalable than others? Um... Well, probably, I mean, I haven't really thought about that, but yeah, most of them, multiplied by two is very, very easy. Multiplied by four should be easy, too. I can't imagine. I mean, sure, there's probably some that are easier than others for for multiplying, but um, they're all doable either way. And so one of the things I was really struck by in reading through it is that it's full of very personal, charming, but, but, but um, personal anecdotes in addition to the what I think are really inviting and in a diverse set of recipe so was that in the original plan when you went to write the book to put your kind of heart and soul on every page or is that just sort of what happened in the process um you know i think it's kind of a stretch to say that i put my heart and soul on it but it um yeah i mean i i think in order to tell people that they are not alone when someone's broken up with you you have to tell some of those stories um Mm. and um yeah, I mean, I think my, you know, I, my proposal certainly had one of those stories in it. So, um, but yeah, you're supposed to write what you know. And, you know, what do I know? I, I, I have my experiences. So. And, and do, you, do you feel like when you developed the book that it was kind of like dedicated to everyone who's been in those moments of being broken up with or single or being single and wanting to be with someone else? Is it sort of uh, dedicated to them as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I just don't understand how some people have never cooked for themselves. I just, you know, it's like, didn't you go to college? Didn't you graduate from college at one point? I, mean, I just, uh, yeah. But I guess, you know, it's a lot of people just order in or get takeout. And it's a lot, um, it's it's cheaper and it's a lot more healthy to uh, to cook for yourself, to cook at home. 
when the book launched, which was about a month ago or so, right? Um, did you find that that you just kept people kept saying, "Oh, I never cook for myself. I never would do that. I just order in." Is that something like a kind of repeating pattern that you found either before or after? Um, well, yeah, I, I've heard that. However, the the book is is selling like hotcakes, so <laughs> clearly there's a need for this. It's just, um, yeah, I think there is some sort of cultural norm about you know that people wouldn't want to just cook for just themselves. Mm. Um, when, and that's strange, I think. Yeah. And do, don't you think I hear it a lot from people, particularly chefs that I know, that after cooking for tons of other people, they just don't have the energy or motivation or, or willpower to actually cook for themselves. I mean, it sounds like you always have, but is was that also something you were thinking about in creating this? Oh, that's not true. I, um, you know, when I was cooking on the line and running a, a, a restaurant, you know coming home and cooking was kind of out of the question but um yeah I mean um but before that I you know I certainly was cooking for myself and um I I guess on the line um we did I did a lot of like single uh you know we would do those those tasting menus and um when you were a regular and you came there all the time and you've had everything on the menu, I would um, do things off menu for them. And so basically you're cooking, you know, for one or two at that point. Um, you're basically cooking for one because it's usually split up. Um, you know, if it's a two, if it's two people eating. Um, mm. So, yeah, it just, it, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I've certainly had a lot of chefs say I don't, I I have no idea how to cook for less than 40 but and that's true i guess i was thinking there's also a difference of you know i some of the people i've been talking to lately are private chefs so they're not doing um staff meal and things like a restaurant might all the time where the chef might have eaten then or early but if you're you know catering or private chefing for a large group by the end of that you're just spent and you probably haven't eaten less other than what you've been tasting as you go along yeah i mean you know even when i was cooking though i would make soups and salads and stuff like that for myself Hmm. well i i was really this book really made me think about my own experiences cooking because i realized that i i do um, i'm just not a takeout person in general and definitely don't do it for just myself um i would sooner cook uh, but obviously i'm doing that in situations where i'm pressed for time or it's really late but i feel like one of the things that i related to is that when you cook for one at least in my experience it's often you're not going out shopping so you're (laughs) opening the fridge seeing what there is opening the pantry and i do feel like i've kind of invented my own some of my favorite dishes that it kind of forces you into that um, sense of discovery and invention for lack of options. Is that also something that was part of where a lot of these recipes came from for you too? Um, Yeah, some of them. I mean, I, you know, I I did try to put myself in that situation and say, well, what do I have? You know, can I make a dish from something that would just be found in your pantry? And um, that would be, you know, balanced. And, I think that's where um, I got, I think there's a pasta dish with like charred lemons and something in there. Um, Mm. But yeah. And so I'm also a big fan of the toaster oven and and will evangelize about about (laughs) using one. I think especially when you're just by yourself and in the example I just gave of like not being someone who likes takeout too much. 
that the toaster oven is an amazing thing. And so I know, I really love that you included that as a key tool in cooking solo. So do do you have some favorite toaster oven um, dishes that you you love? Yeah, I mean, so many things can be done in a toaster oven. I had a you know when I was living in in Paris, that was the only oven I had, and it was a pretty <clears throat> it was a big one, so you could you could roast a small chicken in there. But mm-hmm. I did so you can you know anything that you can fit in there basically that you do in a regular oven you can do in a toaster oven. Um, but what's great about a toaster oven is that it you know you can set it to turn off by itself. So you know if you're toasting nuts or you know i mean so many chefs have burnt the crap out of like you know nuts (laughs) you know by uh, by by shoving them in the in the oven you know in the toaster oven it just turns off automatically and you you can you don't have to worry about it no i i agree that is a great tip toasting nuts for recipes especially when you just need them you know just a plant to to be toasted the toaster oven is a, a, an amazing tool because yeah it's so easy to burn them do you have any so now that you're not um living on the edge in paris with only a toaster oven do you, what do you what do you still like to make or for yourself on the go with the toaster oven oh, i still use my toaster oven all the time i mean i in 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 the city my actual oven is more of a storage space so it's like a big <laughs> like ordeal. a true new yorker yeah like it's a big ordeal to actually cook something in there so um yeah i still um yeah i, I mean i broiled some fish in there last night um for myself and my partner so so for you is it like an everyday tool that you just use all the time still yeah absolutely and i bought it in a grocery store in long island for 25 dollars and you have an expensive, a more expensive oven that you use for storage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, that, it's, not, that, it's not a fancy <laughs> oven by any means. Um, the one in the in the city, at least. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, I would. I would wager. What what percentage do you think of New York City um, ovens are used for storage rather than cooking? Probably <laughs> seventy to eighty. <laughs> at least, probably more. <laughs> yes. Yes, my 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 relatives in New York definitely never use their oven for anything but storage. So. Yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about what is kind of a, a running sub-theme of the book, is that you have lots of helpful tips about eliminating waste. And, you know, I get that, that chefs are very frugal and use stuff, um, you know, maybe in more comprehensive ways than, than people do at home. But wh- why was that important to you to include in, in Solo? Well, I think um, it's hard to, it, it's a little bit harder to, to shop for one and to cook for one and not have waste because... You know, everything at the grocery store is is put in cellophane for a family of four. So, um, yeah, I always found that annoying. I mean, I also come from a crazy no-waste family. And even when I was in France, I mean, you know, it, it, that, that concept of not wasting food was, was, um, was pounded into me. I mean, I had a sous chef at Boulay that used to check our garbage. <laughs> And where do you think the, the tradition in French cooking comes from? Is it environmental? Is it just saving money? Or is it kind of all of those things mashed up together? Well, I'm sure it's all of those things mashed up together. But I think, you know, French cuisine has been was born out of poverty. And so it, it, it yeah, so I think it's an economic issue. But yes, it's, it's an ecological is- issue as well. And um, yeah. 
Well, that's interesting. I've never had that conversation on a podcast. What what does that mean that that French cooking was born out of poverty? Well, um, you know, all of these sauces uh, were developed. All these French, you know, sauces were developed to to mask the off flavors of the meat. Um, mm. So, yeah. So they 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 have come up with these really great sauces to, um, yeah. Um, yeah, to, 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 to make things more to compensate. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, 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 that kind of is a mind-blowing thing, which, which now that you say that I have heard that before, but because I think Americans have this view of French food as fancy, right? They're almost synonymous. And that the fanciness came from a totally different side of things. In fact, maybe wasn't considered fancy. Right. I mean, I, I don't know... Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't really know. I'm I'm not a historian, um, but yeah, I, I think um, you know back in the day they didn't have refrigeration, and um, yeah, things would go off. Hmm. And so back back to your book, it sounds like your view. It wasn't so much that you were trying to take some great environmental stand. You just were looking at that there's a certain inefficiency in cooking for one and trying to provide help in that regard? Was that the goal of the tips? Well, I mean, I I personally don't like waste for for those reasons as well. But um, yeah, I do do think first and foremost, it was, um, you know, it is a a problem of cooking for for one that needs to be solved. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And we're going to be back to talk to Anita about life after Anissa. We'll be right back. Rushing around shopping to all those social gatherings, it's all too easy to fall into bad eating habits around the holidays. But Bob's Red Mill to the rescue with its new muesli cups, perfect for winter on the go. Choose from three delicious varieties, gluten-free with raisins, cranberries, apples, and almonds, gluten-free tropical with mangoes, strawberries, macadamia nuts, and coconut, and even a paleo version that's grain-free. Just add milk or yogurt, hot or cold, and you have a hearty breakfast or snack packed with fiber and protein to keep you going. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Use the discount code JuliasKitchenPod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings A new muesli cups. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Anita Lowe, former chef owner of New York's Anissa Restaurant. We've been talking to her about her new cookbook, Solo, and now we're turning the conversation to what comes next. So Danny Meyer was on our uh, podcast last week, and and he spoke about how sometimes ending things, closing a restaurant, although bittersweet, um, can be done in a and should be done in a celebratory rather than kind of defeatist way. Did did you feel that way about closing Anissa? That there was any celebration to the end of an era, or did it feel like you were forced into it? Oh no, it was it, it was a decision that I made, um, and it was the right decision. And yeah, we had a bunch of parties at the end that was that and made it made it really, yeah, certainly celebratory. So, do you agree with that that approach that more restaurants should sort of shut that that way, or is it very situationally dependent? I think it's situationally um, dependent. I mean, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate that some restaurants get 
you know, shut down by their landlords or, or, or whatever happens. And, and um, you know, Anissa, we had a good run. Um, mm. And I, I was going to shut it down at the end of my lease, which was like two more years anyway. Um, but because of a whole bunch of reasons, um, it just seemed to be the right time at that time. So, And I don't mm. regret it. Well, that that's great to hear, and I can still visualize being in your lovely dining room, and the restaurant had such a, a, a wonderful, intimate setting, which which I think is maybe, do you think, sadly, a thing of the past of intimate restaurants, or, you know, in terms of small number of tables, like, hard, harder and harder to run? Oh, it, yeah, certainly in New York City. Um, you know, that being said, you know, these, you'll, you'll, ha- you'll find them, it's just, they'll be rarer. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think that because running a restaurant in New York has become more and more expensive, and I'm sure that's the same in in a place like San Francisco or Hong Kong, do you think that's going to drive independent chef-owned restaurants kind of out of major cities and you'll have to comb the suburbs to and and even smaller cities to find them? Do you think that's the the trend that we're looking at? Well, certainly. I mean, that that has been the trend for a while now. Um, a lot of chefs leaving New York City, um, and if if you look at who's really successful here, you know, it's they're big corporations for the most part, um, or people are trying to do fast casual, et cetera. Uh, yeah. That being said, yeah, there's still some people that are 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 are, are holding on and and. Uh, having their small restaurants here. So do do you think the the living wage increase that that's going in in New York or maybe it's gone in is um going to make that m- more and more challenging for any of those kind of restaurants to open? Oh, certainly. Um that being said, I'm all, I'm all for it. I just wish that they had you know, we should have been raising the um minimum wage incrementally. Um, over a longer period of time. I mean, the the minimum wage didn't raise for I don't know how long. Um, or it went really incrementally, and then suddenly it just was jumping. And um, that's very difficult on a, on a business. Um, yeah, and what you're finding is that um, clients aren't willing to pay for that. Mm, well, especially when it's a sudden increase. Exactly, versus a gra- exactly, yeah. yeah. So do you think or have you heard or cities like I mean I'm thinking of the cities where the concentration of rent is so expensive like New York and San Francisco I think LA and Chicago are not quite as bad I don't really know but just guessing from the dynamics do you think like New York or have you heard are they putting things in place to because obviously one of the things that makes New York so desirable is it's unique and if it just has a bunch of chain restaurants or restaurants that are very generic it's not going to have the same attraction so do you think the city should be doing more to kind of help you know independent run restaurants survive or are they doing it well they're absolutely they 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 absolutely should be doing more um I don't I, I I don't know where they are. I just, you know, they did, at one point they um, um, started this sort of, uh, this group um, that was, it was headed by one guy um, from, who was hired by the mayor to, to try to address these issues, and then it just disappeared. Like, they really didn't get anything done, and then, um yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know where the mayor is on this. I think um, you know uh, there were things that um, 
he we know that he was aware of uh, that um, he said that he you know I don't I think he seems to be ignoring it so I don't know and do you think it's just not it's not a much of a it's not in a sort of crisis mode where there's much focus on it because it's not yet really so, so impacted the, the the visitors and the people who live there um well it's certainly yeah i mean it's new york city there's plenty of other crises that are much more important than the <laughs> than, than the restaurant into the, the high-end restaurant industry um so that may be what's going on yeah and do you, and do you think that that's where it's really focused on the high end rather than the the pizza places and the and the ta- takeaway shops? Oh well, I, th- I think that's got to be hard for them too. I mean, the 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 smaller places, um, you know, like that increase in for uh, for the servers that makes sense for um, you know because we had a we had an increase in what um, businesses had to pay their servers servers, and it was it it just basically got doubled. Um, which is, you know, which is understandable when you're a, um, a small sort of diner-like place. It makes sense. But for like a high-end restaurant where waiters are making a lot of money in tips, it, it didn't really make sense. Hmm. And so do you, do you think, um, I know we also talked last week to Danny Meyer a lot about his no tipping policy because I think on a sort of social level, it's really fascinating and the, the obviously and I know you've said you support the living wage but it, it's it's changing a very long-standing dynamic that a lot of businesses were built around do, so do you think the no tipping policy and the coordinating wage is the wave of the future or is it still too soon to tell it's too soon to tell but I you know having my, the last year of Anissa we had a no tipping policy and um yeah, I think we we do need to have more equity between the front of the house and the back of the house and 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 how they're paid. Um, yeah, I mean the, the the people. I don't know why clients they just forget about. I guess because you're not seeing the the cooks, but the cooks they're they're making nothing. And I don't know. It's it's just so hard to live in New York City and make you know what what what, what cooks are making and. Um, yeah. Do you think that's actually the crisis that's coming? Because you're at least the second or third person of late who's who's talked to, to me and our audience about that there is a looming affordability crisis in New York about getting people from front of house and back of house to, to be able to work and afford to live there. Is Do you think that is something that is um, going to come to the head or it's part of the ongoing forever struggle of, of big cities? Um, that's, it's not looming, it's here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, uh, we, we don't have enough cooks, um, in general, in, in, in the city. I think, I think it's a nationwide, wide problem, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you live in, in any of the boroughs these days and, um, and on a cook's wage. Um, I think when, when, when stuff like this happens, you need to make, um, transportation stronger. Um, so if 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 we could get better infrastructure there, uh, we could get people in from places that um, where 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 the cost of living is less. But um, you know I, I, that infrastructure seems to be failing as well. So yeah, mm. we're, we're in a we're in a bind right now. 
And so do you see that? Are there just help wanted signs all over New York City and in restaurants and places that need line cooks and and are places closing because they don't have the staff? Um, I don't know about places closing, but it's just, you know, that was one of the big reasons why I closed Anissa. It just was, it was just too much of a headache, um, you know, constantly dealing with the lack of cooks. And, you know, everywhere, you know, people, Every all all of my friends who still have restaurants or are working in restaurants are like, yeah, we're down to cook this week, yeah, this one left, blah blah blah. You know, it's just or, or they've got, um, you know, the 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 quality of the 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 line cooks have gone down as well. I think, um, you know, I, I don't I, know, it's because they you know everyone we're taking there's only so many of us, I guess. I guess a conservative economist would say, well, the laws of supply and demand mean that if the supply is dropping, then to stimulate the demand, everyone's going to have to start paying, you know, the living wage plus 10 plus 20 percent. Is that already happening or is there a reason that sort of can't happen? No, that well, that's already happening. But the reason why it can't happen is because, you know, um, clients are really willing to pay for a meal what it takes to give, you know, to give everybody in a in a restaurant a, a living wage so it seems like something that is going to come to a head for cities especially expensive cities to deal with at least in, in, at some point soon right i mean i think um i don't know in australia they've been able to deal with this from what i've heard but you know i think they spend people spend a lot of money on dinner there so that the inevitable is that that eating out and and even takeaway places are going to get more expensive. Well, true. Or we people are going to choose to eat more um to to eat in um less expensive places, which is already happening, which is you know this proliferation of fast casual. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's let, let's talk about something a little peppier. <laughs> yeah. We're going going to a dark future of uh, no no fine dining. Well, that's not going to happen. But yeah, <laughs> there will always be fine dining. It's just yeah. Um. So I know you like to travel, and I was curious about what you do with Tour de Forks, and and if you could tell us about. I know you did a, an interesting trip recently, and you have an upcoming trip. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, we we did two trips with the Tour de Forks to um, Mexico to Merida in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, and we stayed we stay in this fantastic hacienda, um, Hacienda Patak, which you can't just go to; um, you have to rent out the whole place in order to stay there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's you know it's 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 very um, luxurious and um, and it's a, I we don't ever take more than twelve people. So it's a nice, um, so it, so it's it's easier, um, and um, yeah, we go to uh, we, we go to the market. We have cooking classes. We have uh, uh, we go to go see some Mayan ruins. Um, yeah, and then in the um, next year, we go to a cenote, uh, et cetera. Um, it's a wonderful trip. Um, and next year we're going to be going to Portugal. And uh, doing pretty much, I mean, we won't be going to cenotes, but we'll be um, <laughs> focusing on food um, um, and, you know, food tourism. And I'll be teaching a class there as well. And so just sticking on the, the Yucatan and Merida, are you doing that trip also next year in the fall? Um, that remains to be seen. But, yeah, perhaps we'll do that every year. 
Um, we've it's uh it's a nice really it's a really nice place to go. So. And do you do the cooking class at the hacienda? Yes, they have a lovely uh, sort of demo kitchen there. Actually, it's not even a demo kitchen. You could you I mean we, it's a hands on hands on cooking class, so it could be a demo kitchen. It could be either. So, but we do hands on. And what are what's the focus of the trip to Portugal? Food, of course. <laughs> <We're gonna laughs> and are you going like all over the entire country? Or are you going to one place and region? Or, um, gosh, that's a good question. I think I I know that we're we're going to be spending some time in the capital, and I know that we're going out. Um, we're going to the countryside and staying in this beautiful, beautiful um, hotel. We're going to be making some cheese there. Um, we're going to go to a Michelin-starred restaurant. I. I I uh, I'm not exactly sure the the final um, itinerary. Yeah, no, I was reading. It's it's a. I mean, it's not. It's almost a year from now, right? Yes. Is it next fall? Yes. And so I was curious because obviously I know that you you have traveled and like to travel. What's the attraction of of joining up and sort of making it a a job? Or are you kind of are you the leader? Or are you kind of a participant along with the other people and just the sort of chef expert? I'm just the chef expert, and then yeah, I'm the leader only on the day that I'm or the time that I'm cooking, um, that I'm I'm teaching the cooking class. Uh, so otherwise, you're you're kind of one of the group. Yes. Okay. And do you, do you get do you get something out of these that um, that you haven't been getting in your personal travels, or what what is it that you enjoy about them? Well, it. You know, the Tour de Forks uh, is um, owned by um, two people that are, are good friends of mine. And um, they usually come along, and so we have a really good time. And um, I get to meet new people. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, by doing this class, I, 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 I don't have to pay for the trip. And, um, yeah, it's nice. And the Tour de Forks, does it have a particular mission, or is it sort of travel for people who want to spend all their time thinking about and eating food? Or yeah, it's culinary travel. But there's, you know, it's 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 um, it's curated. Um, it is sort of higher end, although they can, you know, they will do personal trips for however however you want to travel. Um, but yeah, it, uh, you should check it out. It's uh, www.tourdeforks.com. Great. So, so you, in other words, if you had a group of 10 or something like that, or uh, I don't know what number, you could go to them and say you could do a, they would do a private um, itinerary plan for you as well. Oh, well, they would do that for one or two or however many you want as well. Oh, okay. But, you know, from our tours, the tours that we, we make and try to sell are, are no more than 12, yeah. Oh, okay. So you've also said that you don't see yourself opening another restaurant. So is there anything crystallizing yet in terms of what will be next? Or are you living in the moment? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't see myself opening another restaurant of my own um, in that I, I don't particularly at this age um, want to, you know, want to own another restaurant. But I would I would clearly open... An, another restaurant for for somebody else and be sort of a long-term consultant and that's what I'm actively seeking right now 
So, sorry, that means that, in other words, you wouldn't be the owner, but you might be the executive chef? Right, yeah, sort of consultant chef. I mean, I can't, um, I, you know, I had a knee replacement that wasn't that successful, um, so it's really hard for me to be on my feet all the time. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. to get something where I could set up, set it up, um, and, you know, make sure it's running properly, and then walk away and check in and make sure it's, it's uh, you know, do quality checks every once in a while. I see. And so are you in conversations about doing that? Yes. But no, no big news yet? No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. After the break, Anita's going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Anita, what's your Julia Moment? So, I once had the good fortune of cooking for... Julia Child, uh, when I was the executive chef of Maxime's, um, which was up on 60th Street. Uh, and she came in for lunch, and I was in my 20s at that time. I don't remember how old I was, but I was probably somewhere near 25 or something like that, 26. And I had prepared this elaborate, you know, tasting menu for her. I was getting everything ready. I was really excited. And um, she came in, and I went out to the table. I was like, yes, I'd be happy to cook for you, blah, blah, blah. And um, she's like, oh, I-, I think I'll have the roast chicken. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, so that's what I made for her. It was basically like uh, a pan-roasted half chicken with mashed potatoes and some sort of sauce and some sort of <laughs> some sort of vegetable. But <laughs> well, they do. The chefs often say their favorite, their last meal would be roast chicken. So there you go. Um, so did the whole tasting menu? Had you prepped this entire tasting menu? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I mean, it did t- teach me that you know, the the you need to nail the uh, simple things as well. Mm. And and did you get feedback on the pan roasted chicken? Um, I, yeah, I think she really enjoyed it. But that and that moment has stuck with you from the contrast between the elaborate to the to the simple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's lovely. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Our pleasure, and thanks everyone for listening. Do you cook for yourself? What are your favorite solo dishes? Send us an email or even a voice memo. 
to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation, as always, on social media. Our handles are at joyachild on Facebook, at joyachildfoundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at joyachildjcf on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. You can also follow Anita. Her handle is at Anita Lowe, L-O-N-Y-C, on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're interested, as she mentioned in her travel journeys, check out tourtoforks.com. And as I said, while next year's trip to Portugal is currently sold out, it clearly pays to get on their mailing list early for future uh, trips. Anita's beautiful new cookbook is Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one, published by Knopf. Find it at your favorite online or bricks-and-mortar bookseller now. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, who today is Jeet rather than the usual Matt. And our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Joy's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.